Today we continue with the idea that that there are dangers to your spiritual discernment. There are things that are blind spots. There are things that you will run into in terms of other people's um, unhealthiness that can 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 make your own development and spiritual discernment somewhat difficult. The last two days, we, we talked about those who are people pleasers, the, those who are compliant, those who can't say no. And we talked about those who are avoidant, those who can't say yes, and the difficulties that those um, you know, behaviors, ways of looking at the world, those, those uh, for some compliance, it's kind of a fuzzy boundary not knowing where they begin and where they end. For the avoidant, it's a, it's a thick wall that doesn't really let the bad out, but doesn't let the good in. So today we want to talk about the third danger. I'm sure we, we'll talk about one more tomorrow, but today the third danger is that all of us have, have a struggle with control. So we really got, we, if we're going to, be able to let go of control and of being controlling, or at least the drive to control others and to control our circumstances. We have to go back and 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 really understand uh, about our our spiritual life, our spiritual dimension of our life. Now, I want to talk a little bit psychologically with you today before we look at the specific aspect of control, but that's what we're going to get to. Up until about the 20th century, the concept of the soul was a mainstay in understanding personhood, understanding of the nature of being a person. And this was uh, agreed upon by theologians, philosophers, Anybody that reflected on on human person, you know, personhood, talked about the soul. But in the early 20th century, the idea of the soul became very unfashionable. Um, there were a couple of reasons for that. Again, this is a little bit of history, but sometimes it's helpful. Theologians realized that there had been this. Uh, incredible influence of Plato on the view of of humans uh, on on personhood, his view of the soul, and his view of the soul was was so influential. But it, it was it was this idea that he had promoted that you have an immortal soul that was imprisoned in a mortal body. See, he had this kind of idea that what was material or physical was evil and what was spiritual was good. And so the, the, the idea uh, was really kind of a disjointed personhood, soul, you know, immortal good in a body, evil, and the soul just yearns for release at death. Well, that, that's not the Old Testament view at all. That's, that's not the revelation of God in, in the scriptures about, about the soul. As a matter of fact, the, that, that kind of unconnectedness or, or even the, the 
you know, this one's good, one's evil kind of thing is not a biblical concept. Really, the the, the concept of, of Hebrew uh, talking about soul is, is really talking about self. And talking about, in a way, you know, both your true self, your false self, all that kind of stuff. Well, that that made, in a sense, that soul um, became unpopular to use at the beginning of the 20th century. But then what arose instead was psychology, and which is interesting because the concept of the soul was, in, in these early days, was sort of frowned upon by modern psychology. And so that's, it's rather paradoxical because the word psychology literally means the science of the soul. But you see, through the, the different theories of psychology uh, that were being promoted, particularly at the turn uh, of the 20th century, um, you, had, uh, you had a kind of <laughs> science of the soul but a science without soul. And so they avoided, because they wanted to make it scientific, so they avoided anything unobservable. And so everything became much more behavior-focused, because you could observe behavior. So the idea was to distance from religion, distance from what could be called spiritual, and so the soul became kind of an unnecessary baggage from the past. And in many ways, what happened is, particularly with what, you know, at least I would call evolutionary psychology, is that you had the idea that this, this is all that there is. The material is all that there is. So a secular view sees no afterlife, sees no life after death. So this is all that there is. Life itself is, is, is rather random. Suffering is rather random. And so out of that kind of evolutionary uh, view of the world and view of psychology, view of human beings, you, you got basically a materialistic, secular, and then that influenced the psychological culture. So what's happening now is people are actually coming back to this idea of soul, recognizing that there's, there's something more going on than what is observable. So the, the soul, one, one writer said, the soul is the meeting point of your psychological life and your spiritual life. They cannot be separated. So if you're really gonna care for a person, you're gonna have to care for their soul. And, and then, then where this becomes effective, particularly in therapy and counseling, is when these modern therapeutic psychology psychological insights, which have observed some incredible things about human behavior, human uh, causes of uh, root issues, all this kind of stuff, but also to bring in the, the historic Christian approach to the care and to the cure of persons, uh, you have to realize that there's, you can't distinguish out and, and make irrelevant the spiritual if you're really going to deal with the psychological, if you're going to deal with the care of souls. So there's a, what's happening, and many people are seeing this, is there's a reuniting of both the psychological and the spiritual. 
And this is what's directing more and more the activities of those who care for the souls of others in such a way that their care touches the deepest levels of people's inner lives. Now, I mean, just an aside for a minute. This is kind of a strange thing. I, I, my Lisa and I are both Star Trek fr- uh, fans, and there's some new Star Trek uh, shows that have come out, and we've watched them together and enjoyed them together. And it's fascinating because when someone dies or when a ship is destroyed or whatever, they don't say uh, a thousand people were killed. They say we lost a thousand souls. And and it's just so fascinating to me. It's like, wow, here's Star Trek, which is, pr- is pretty anti-Christian as, as it comes. And yet what they're, how they're identifying people you know, of course, we're talking about a galaxy of, of, uh, of uh, you know, individuals. They're identifying them as souls. That's a, that's a change. That's a switch. Because people are really seeing we, we need something more than just the science without a soul. And so, if you're... Like if you're a person who has a gift of compassion or you have a gift of caring and you want to help people, you have to realize that what's happening is people are starting to real, people are starting to want soul care. And there's no longer this distinction anymore that, that what is psychological is not spiritual or what is spiritual is not psychological. Now that there's still some Christians who are so afraid of psychology, but but any knowledge of the soul, any knowledge of the person and personhood is helpful to us and can help us to bring spiritual remedies to the issues of the soul. And so this is a, a switch that's happening and it's a, a pretty important one because for almost, it's almost 100 years, well, 100 years plus, the church has been fighting to say, we have something to say about the care of people's souls. And, and so now uh, that displacement of people in ministry for only psychotherapists or only those who are behaviorists or whatever it might be, is ta- there, there's, a, there's something happening where everyone is starting to realize we need, we need people who can care for the soul. So you know, this artificial distinction of psychological and spiritual has had an effect on Christian spirituality that many people, particularly when I was going to seminary back in the 80s and Bible college in the 70s, the emphasis was on knowing God, but very little emphasis on knowing self. And, and I think this was a, you know, just as I think the um, making a distinction between psychology and spirituality, uh, making such a distinction that all you have to do is know God and you'll be okay uh, without knowing self and without studying self, without studying, in a sense, the soul, is a mistake. Or to make it merely philosophical and conceptual and not to begin to learn how do I apply these truths to the brokenness and the woundedness and vulnerability of my life. 
I don't mean this to be harsh, and it may come out harsh, but many of, of, of uh, the most credentialed professors that I had, and those who were most uh, expert in theology, often were very inept in, in terms of social uh, interaction. They were inept in terms of personal interaction. Uh, some, of, some of my most genius professors had terrible temper problems. I watched one of my professors embarrass uh, a student. Uh, we were out sitting in the, on the, uh, you know, in the lawn studying, and this professor came up and showed the student his paper and ripped the paper up in front of him and said, you disrespected me with this paper. Don't ever do anything like this again. Well, that, I really, I mean, this guy's a genius of the Old Testament, genius in Hebrew, wrote books on, on the Psalms, and yet here he is treating a uh, student like this. It, it, you got to understand that it has to be both, that your knowledge of God leads to a greater knowledge of self, and knowledge of self can give you greater capacity for a knowledge of God. You never stop learning about both. Because things are always, you know, things are shifting and changing in our lives and our ability to learn and grow should be in an increasing capacity. Um, the problem, particularly when I was coming up in the ministry and coming up in my adulthood as a Christian, is there was this, this distinction in a way. Here's spirituality, here's psychology. But we have to have a spirituality um, that actually is informed by the study of self and personhood and then vitally integrate that into both our, our theology and our practice. Such a, a, a spirituality can transform us. A spirituality that doesn't inform us about these dangers, you know, being compliant, people-pleasing, being avoidant, you know, resistant, stubborn, or today we talk about being controlling. If it doesn't inform us about those things, then what people do is they take theology and use it to beat up on people or to make them feel guilty or manipulate them. Um, you see a tragic thing in our culture right now where there, there are Christian leaders who have protected an abuse of their power, who have protected sexual immorality, who have protected sexual harassment and abuse and all of these different things. And they, they use, in a sense, theology to, to, in a way, wall themselves off from accountability. Well, just good, healthy understanding of, of truth and how you speak the truth in love and how you do church discipline and all of this stuff could make a huge difference. But there is a disconnect from a healthy spirituality, even with some people's theology. So what we're looking at and why we're talking about these things is because we want a spirituality, we want to live in a spiritual discernment that involves the totality of our being and does not continue the fragmentation of, you know, compartments that belong to God and compartments that continue in our own brokenness. 
in our own stubbornness. So there's an inter- interdependence. There's a, there's a need that you have, I have, for a deep knowing of God, but also a deep knowing of self. And, and when we get this integration of a deep knowing of God and self, we really can begin to experience greater and greater wholeness. And holiness and godliness in this instance is actually is actually fullness. And, and, and this is what Jesus has promised, that you might have life, that you might have it to the full. So here's, in a way, some looks at, and we'll do another tomorrow, but want to look at your soul. See, in some ways, if you're just being spiritually discerning about everybody else, but not looking at your own soul, you have not gone far enough so that you are experiencing a wholeness and a fullness, and you were made for that. Everything Jesus has done is that you might experience fullness, that you might experience wholeness. So, the nature of the soul cannot just be mapped. (laughs) A lot of people um, do not like things that have mystery to them. But the soul is one of those things that has mystery. Uh, David Benner says it this way, says it really well. He says, if, the ma- if maps of the soul eliminate mystery, they also eliminate the soul. So what we're really talking about in terms of really giving you spiritual sightedness is we're talking about the care of your soul. And to be able to do that well, and then to be able to care for other people's souls as well. Up until uh, this kind of break with psychology, this, this idea of care of your soul and care of other people's souls has had a central place both in Christianity and in Judaism. The English phrase, soul care, or care of souls, it has its origin actually in Latin, Cura animarum. Now, cura is, tra- is commonly translated as care, soul care. But it's more than care. It actually contains the idea of cure, cura, care and cure. So the idea here is not just that you care for your soul. In other words, you kind of nurse your wounds or you you know you you shelter your your brokenness but the idea is that there's healing for that that soul care isn't just caring for but it's curing what has fragmented the soul so care refers to the actions that are designed to support the well-being of something or someone but cure refers to actions that are designed to restore well-being that is lost. When we talk today about people who are controlling, they're controlling because of brokenness, fear and pride. Fear that, you know, either they're not going to have the life they want or things aren't going to happen the way they want to, or pride that says, well, I have a right to control. I'm afraid, therefore I have a right to control. So this comes from brokenness. It doesn't come from love and humility. Compliance, fear and pride. Avoidance, fear and pride. So these are souls that are, that are broken. So I won't spend a lot of time on this, but both in Greek and Hebrew, 
They are words for soul. And these biblical words are rich in meaning. In the Old Testament, the, the word for soul, nepesh, it ranges from life, the inner person, particularly thoughts, feelings, and passions, to the whole person, including the body. And it's the soul that distinguishes the human from animals and the living from the dead. It's the source of emotions, the will, moral actions. In the New Testament, the Greek idea of psyche carries such meaning as the totality of the person, their physical life, their mind, their heart. Also, soul is presented as a spiritual center of life and as the seat of desire, emotions, and identity. Alright, why am I sharing all this? Well, I'm sharing all this because even if I start saying to you, okay, here's a danger. You have an issue with control. Don't be controlling. Well, that doesn't recognize how complex you are. That control is maybe, a, you know, it's a manifesting or presenting symptom. But just to tell you not to be controlling and to not cure and care for the totality of your being means that maybe you will you'll hide how controlling you are, but you won't have changed. You won't have been cared for or cured in the area where the control gets its power. Uh, let me give you a quick illustration of this, just to, just to show that this is the way God looks at you. One of my favorite stories of restoration is the restoration of Elijah. He's very disappointed with God after Mount Carmel. That seems strange, doesn't he? He sees firefall, sees the prophets of Baal defeated. He stands alone against um, all the false gods and he wins. But see, why he's disappointed is nothing changed. Jezebel is still Jezebel. Ahab is still king, and there's no national revival, and there's no national repentance. And he really thought that one big event would turn the whole nation around, and instead the nation's just as corrupt as ever. So he, he leaves Jezreel, which is the capital. He leaves, he, he fires his prophetic assistant, he closes his prophetic office, and he goes as far away from God and the people as he possibly can. Now, if Elijah was just, in a sense, a soul, a spiritual being, if, he, if the soul wasn't the totality of his being, then God would have just preached him a sermon and said, Elijah, you're a prophet, get back to being a prophet. But God treated him as a totality. He didn't just care for him, he cured him. And how did he do it? Well, he dealt with, he dealt with his physical. He fed him. The angel, the angel sent, fed him. Okay, that's not what a lot of people do when somebody's depressed. We go, you, you need to quit being depressed. If Christians shouldn't be depressed, that's not what God did. He didn't preach him a sermon. He didn't give him a teaching on depression. He fed him. Then he he told him to sleep, and then he fed him again. You understand. God treats you, you, like you may be embarrassed by the things you've done with your body, or you may be embarrassed by the guilt of some actions in the past that make you turn away from God, but God has always seen you as a totality. 
And, and so he's always, you know, we're kind of wanting to separate out and say, well, this is my soul. This is my spiritual life. This is my physical life. These are my appetites over here. And God says, I'm, I want to bring a unity to all of this. See, it's only Greek philosophy that says the material and the physical is evil. The Bible says the material was good. God made it. It's good. Now, what we do with it is not always good. And, and certainly when we do things that draw us away from God, that's evil because they're not of God. And when we do good, we're doing the things of God and it draws us to God. But let me let me continue with the Elijah story just to show God the, the perfect counselor, psychologist, and pastor and how all this came together. So here he feeds him, he gets him to sleep. I mean, you know, he deals with his brokenness in totality. And then, if you'll remember, he, he manifests who he is. I mean, he comes with the fire, he comes with the earthquake, he comes with the whirlwind, he comes with all this stuff, but, but he doesn't speak in any of those things. Now, here's, here's what I think. All of those things are things of judgment. Fire, burning things up, that's judgment. Earthquake, a whirlwind, all this stuff, that's judgment, you see. But where does he speak to Elijah? See, I think Elijah's expecting God to scold him. I think God's, Elijah's expecting God to condemn him. Instead, how does God speak? In a still, small voice. Not judgment. Comfort, compassion, empathy. He speaks to the totality of Elijah's person. If you're struggling with control, if you're struggling with compliance, if you're struggling with all these other things, you know, it's not just a behavior issue. It's a soul care issue. It's a soul cure issue. See, God cared for Elijah in his totality. God cares for you in your totality. He's not the fire who's going to burn you. He's not the earthquake that's going to just shake your whole being up and, and not leave you with a place to stand. He's not the whirlwind who's going to blow you away. He is all those things, but he used all those things on Jesus on the cross. He's the still, small voice that you can hear. Sometimes what happens, at least for me, is I have to quit my shouting and quit letting my pain shout so loudly that I can't hear his still, small voice. So what's our problem then? Well, humans spurned God's love in favor for what was perceived to be freedom. The result of this quest for freedom has always been bondage, alienation, an unhealthy self-love, egocentricity, estrangement from our deepest self, God, and others. We do not realize how far we have to go, especially sometimes when things seem to be going well. But there are moments in our life where God says, okay, I need to deal with a new layer so you can get closer to me. See, we... We are, we're born with a relational breach from God, and we create greater breaches. Our friends, our families, uh, people outside of faith, they're living in an environment of tainted love, trying to draw life from love that's finite and a love that's given to selfishly receive it back, a transactional kind of love. So we have this, we have this, this design 
we have this design, you see, to connect, to experience belonging, feeling of belongingness. But you see, in the absence of God's love, in any place in our heart, any place in our soul where God's love is absent to us, there's fear. And so what happens is a lot of individuals attempt to eliminate fear by avoiding failure, criticism, while engaging in self-protection by controlling other people. So what we're really talking about, you see, is I can tell you about control and about the boundaries and all of this kind of stuff, but if there is not this sense of totality that God is working on, in a sense, it, it begins with the fear. And it could be fear of failure. It could be fear of, of criticism. It could be fear of uncertainty or whatever it is. But it drives us into a controlling posture. But it all comes out of self-protection and unhealthy love. And so we have to surrender to and experience and encounter God's love. Someone who's, who's a controller can't respect other people's limits because their limits are actually in the way of, you know, whatever it is I want or need, think I need. And people who are controlling, so interesting. I, Sunday morning, I, as I was looking out and talking about God's healing path, there were spotlights on numerous people in the congregation from the Spirit and my heart was breaking because the Spirit was saying, I'm trying to convict them of their control, but I'm trying to free them from their fear. I'm trying to convict them of their control, but I'm trying to free them from their fear. Now, not all controllers are bullies, but many are. Some, some play the role of martyr. Oh, how can you do this to me? The idea is manipulative, can be aggressive. But the problem here, and we've been talking, I've tried to talk all week about the idea of letting your yes be yes and your no be no. The primary problem of controllers is they won't hear no, they can't hear no. This is different from being able to say no. They tend to project responsibility for their lives on others. They use various means of control to motivate others. It could be guilt, it could be shame, to carry the load intended by God to be theirs alone. I loved uh, my mother. She passed away many years ago. But when I would call her, her first thing was not to say, oh, I'm so happy you called. It's so nice to hear your voice. Her first thing to say is, why haven't you called more often? Now, she wasn't an aggressive controller. In a way, she was a passive-aggressive controller. And so she was, she was telling me, you know, um, in a way, I want to control how often you, you call me and you're not calling me enough. So I'm going to manipulate you being a martyr and I'll manipulate you with guilt. Well, mothers can do that very well. Other people can do it very well. But, but in a way... If I'm only calling her out of guilt, I'm not calling her out of love. So even though I'm calling her, it's still an empty thing for her. Very unsatisfying. Now, there are aggressive controllers. These are people who just run over 
other people's boundaries, other people's personhood. These are verbally abusive, sometimes even physically abusive, definitely emotionally abusive. But many of us um, are manipulative controllers, and in some ways manipulative controllers are more difficult to repent because they're usually less honest. They, they don't see themselves as violating people. They, they don't know that they're trying to persuade or seduce people to carry their burdens. They use guilt in their message. So what do we, what do we do? Well, one of the things is you have to realize control, controlling behavior doesn't come from love, so it's not love. The love that God talks about does not seek a return on its investment. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it is not self-seeking. Caring for someone so they'll care back for you is an indirect means of controlling someone else. So here's, here's what I think you do. is, And all of us have tendencies in this direction. So we have to gently place our need for control our desire for control in the hands of the Lord. Ask Him to give you a clear mind, clear heart. Not so much, you see, to deal with the symptom, but to deal with the root issue, the power source. So honesty and humility will bring light to where there's fear and pride. If you're an aggressive controller, you're going to need, you're going to, need to deal with that. You're a manipulative controller, you're probably going to need somebody else's help to show it to you. What are you trying to control? Why are you trying to control it? Who are you trying to control? Here's one of the, it says, even caring for someone so that they'll care back for us is an indirect means of controlling. So here's what I've found is that even when it comes to humility and it comes to love, it's not that I try to will myself to love and be humble, but rather I surrender my fear and pride and I receive by faith Jesus' love and Jesus' humility. Let's do that today. Let's say, Lord, cure my soul. Lord, care for my soul. Here's what, I, here's what I, 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 I'm sure of. He's speaking with his still small voice. You're my beloved. You're my beloved. You don't have to be afraid. There's no fear in love. In Jesus' name, amen.